All right, and we are rolling once again, Brother Kevin. How's life treating you so far today? Oh, it is treating me very well, and I'm excited about the guest that we have today, a, a friend of mine for, for many years. We were just joking off air how he used to work for our promotional product company, and uh, but much more importantly than that, we are united through the blood of Christ, and uh, Daniel is a phenomenal, just a phenomenal Christian, and I'm excited to have him on today to discuss a pretty controversial topic. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, hold on. You're saying that he's a united brother in Christ, but he has a different opinion about a certain biblical topic than we do? That's insane. Crazy. It's crazy. Now, our guest today is Brother Daniel Rogers, who you and Daniel, I just had the privilege to connect with you through Kevin. We've emailed a little bit back and forth and we've talked a little bit uh, just before we hit record. That's the first time you and I have ever um, exchanged pleasantries. But I know I've enjoyed that brief conversation so far, and I'm really looking forward to discussing this idea uh, with you today. So, man, thank you for taking time out of your your day and out of your schedule to uh, join us. Well, thank you both for uh, inviting me on. Uh, Kevin has mentioned to me in the past that he wants me to come on eventually and talk about talk about uh, eschatology, or that is the study of end times. Um, he said he needed to soften the audience up and not bring such awful heresy onto the program so quickly. So I'm glad enough time has passed. <laughs> yeah, we, we softened everybody up with Lee uh, saying that we should just throw Genesis 1 through 11 out the window. So that's I think that's softened everybody. Or it really hasn't softened everybody. It's ran everybody away. So now we have an audience of one. Hey, Mom. <laughs> hey, what's up, you guys? <laughs> Well, and that's the that's the hilarious thing is is that we've spent quite a bit of time delving into science and scripture in the previous episodes. We've talked a lot at length about Genesis and different interpretive strategies that people have utilized to reconcile science and faith. We spent a lot of time in the front end of the Bible, and now we're going to be kind of moving on to the end of the Bible and the end of all time. Now, one of the things that you said, Daniel, is um, eschatology. That's a term that might not be familiar to some of our listeners. That's a, a theological term that basically means study of the end times or belief systems that envelope the end times. And there's a variety of different beliefs out there. One of the more common ones within um, Protestant traditions is premillennialism. Then there's um, amillennialism, which is the sort of the default perspective that most churches of Christ take. Um, there are little offshoots of those and there are nuances, but then there's also realized eschatology, also referred to as preterism. And my understanding of that is somewhat limited because like we talked about at the before we hit record is it seems like that so often whenever other viewpoints are discussed, whether it's eschatology or or origins or anything else, it's really common for people of all stripes to take those ideas and distill them down into an essence that doesn't really represent the position adequately and then attack that straw man that's been built as if that is an adequate representation of the position itself. And that's one of the things that Kevin and I want to avoid. There are things that Kevin has studied a lot that I haven't, that we've been able to discuss well. There are things that I've studied that Kevin hasn't studied as much that we've been able to discuss well. But this is a topic that I haven't spent a lot of time studying, and I know Kevin has admitted he hasn't spent a lot of time studying it. And I'm excited to hear what it is that preterism actually teaches, what the foundation and what the backbone of that viewpoint is. So what is preterism exactly? It's an eschatological viewpoint and perspective, but what is it? So uh, the, word, the word preterism comes from a Greek word, which simply 
or actually, I think it's actually Latin. I don't know. I'm not a linguist. I'm a Bible student, which I mean, by default should make me a linguist. But then again, you know, we're not all perfect like Kevin. So, uh, but anyways, preterism is the viewpoint that uh, basically all Bible prophecy has been fulfilled. Uh, it's it's probably best summed up in Luke chapter 21, if you want a passage, verses 21 through 23. This is sort of a, a foundational text for those who believe in preterism. By the way, uh, this view is called many different things. Preterist, uh, realized eschatology, covenant eschatology, 80-70 theory. Heresy. I mean, just, it's heresy. called heresy. <laughs> well, that's, that is its most common term. <laughs> but as I'm sure Lee doesn't like to be called uh, anti, I don't like to be called heretic. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Luke chapter 21, 21 through 23 says, Then those who are in Judea, must flee to the mountains and those who are in the midst of the city must leave and those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are the days of vengeance so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. So we'll just stop there. I think I said 21 to 23. I meant to say 20 to 22, but you know, like I said, not perfect like Kevin, but the, the scripture says there that when they saw Jerusalem surrounded by armies, they were to flee the city because those were the days of vengeance when all things written would be fulfilled. And so that's basically the position that I take, that all things written in the Old Testament concerning the end times, uh, which I guess you could say is the time of the end, not necessarily the end of the to- uh, end of time. It's the end of the Mosaic Age, end of the Old Covenant, uh, end of the, you know, the earthly state is of Israel, right? But it's not the end of time. Um, all things written about that in the Old Testament was fulfilled no later than the fall of Jerusalem. And, you know, the question that comes to everybody's mind is, well, what, what about the New Testament passages? When will those be fulfilled? Well, here's, my, here's our view. That is that there is no prophecy in the New Testament that's not based upon a prophecy that was already talked about in the Old Testament. The New Testament authors simply confirmed and repeated what the Old Testament prophets had said. And so, so we believe that all things were fulfilled no later than the fall of Jerusalem. So... That, so to so to clarify for the audience, just just for nothing less than the shock, or so nothing more than the shock factor, sure. Uh, at at this point, just to let them know so that they can get used to this before going forward. So you're saying that there's not going to be a future resurrection. That's right. Um, that Jesus is not going to come back. That the Bible doesn't talk about the world being destroyed. Is is that correct? Right, right. It, it, now we have to be careful with definitions, right? So. I believe there is no future bodily resurrection out of the grave. I, I don't believe that Jesus is going to literally return one day, one because I believe he's already here in a different sense. And I don't believe that if the world ends, it's because of a fulfillment of any prophecy. Um, I'm not against the world ending. You know, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of science. I've studied you know all different kinds of sciences in college, and so I understand this you know second law of thermodynamics and things like that. But if the world ends, it has nothing to do with the Bible prophecy. Is is my position? So okay. right, and, oh, oh, go ahead, brother. Well, I was going to say so right about now before people turn this podcast off. <laughs> what, <laughs> what 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 would you say? Because uh, because we had talked about uh, some of this beforehand. It, you said you want to talk a little bit about how at first this sounds pretty ridiculous. Uh, because of how we have been trained to understand the Bible. And so 
go ahead and get into that a little bit before people just completely say, whoa, wait a minute, this Daniel guy (laughs) is just way off track. This is it's it's one thing, you know, to to believe something different. But, man, this just sounds this does sound like heresy. This does sound like false doctrine. So what what would you say, first of all, to to begin to alleviate that individual's questions and discomfort? (laughs) For sure. I, I would definitely say that. This is the most ridiculous thing you've heard all day and probably all week. Uh, this is not easy to get used to, and you probably will never get used to hearing this because most people, honestly, don't reach the same conclusions that I do. And I just want to make it known that this was my exact reaction when I was you know, first told about this doctrine. And it's that again, that's just so normal to react that way because it is so different than uh, than what we've always been taught. But I'd also like to say that Uh, I don't think anything less at all about people who disagree with me. You know, in in John chapter one, John wrote there in uh, John wrote there in verse 17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, if if the law of Moses contained truth, why does he say that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ? Because knowing the truth isn't about and from my from my perspective, isn't about uh, understanding and believing a certain list of facts, but it's about knowing Jesus because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I'm less concerned with, you know, with, with people that agree with me and more concerned with people that live like me you know, and follow Christ you know, in the way that I try to do and love their neighbor as their self. So if you, if you disagree with me, that's not the end of the world. No pun intended. <laughs> hey, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. But, well, and, uh, and brother, what, and what you're saying there, Daniel, it, that has been the biggest thing that I have wrestled with probably within the last probably two-ish to three years is, is everything that you just said. I think you put that so beautifully. This idea of not needing to agree on a set of facts or agree on a list of rules or principles or things that I have ascertained to be true because so much of how our tradition has has moved in the past and how we have predicated fellowship has been on understanding everything alike and having the right opinion about the right facts. And I just moving beyond that and moving beyond that sense of certainty in the list of facts and into a place of of emulating Jesus and taking a more Christus centric approach to Christianity and a more practical approach, it can be really challenging, but it, it gets easier as you move through that. And that's part of what makes this idea hard for a lot of people to really wrap their heads around is because it is foreign to, to what they know and to what they believe to be true and how they have looked at scripture. Well, and when you, when you look at the core of a lot of different biblical issues, I discussed hell several months ago and did a few podcasts on that. And oftentimes the false accusation is I deny hell. And the answer is no, I don't deny hell. I have a different understanding of what hell uh, is and what happens in hell. Same is true with Lee when he talked about creation. Lee doesn't deny that God is the creator of all things. He has a different understanding of how that unfolded in Genesis uh, by not taking a literal approach, but by taking more of a contextual approach. And so I want our audience to know also for you you don't deny what Paul anything Paul said. You you, you don't you you don't deny a res, you don't deny a resurrection. You don't deny a, a, the a hope a future hope for Christians. You just have a different understanding of when the resurrection took place and how the resurrection took place. Correct. 
Exactly. I don't deny anything, you know, that Paul, that Paul said, and I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid of any passage, you know, in Paul's writings. Uh, you know, if anything that he says, you know, shows that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not believing the right thing or whatever. I mean, I have no problem with changing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, real quick, I want to touch on something that, that Lee said and something that Kevin and I were talking about before the podcast started is before I came to this view, I had a very small circle of fellowship. And the people that I believe to be, you know, in Christ was, you know, as, as Matthew 7 talks about, you know, narrow and, and, uh, and straight, right? Well, when I changed my mind about the study of the end times, it opened up a whole world of possibilities for who is in Christ. Because I believe, that, you know, that I, if I could be wrong about that, then I could be wrong about anything else. And I need to extend the same grace and patience and peace towards others as God has shown towards me. And now it can have the opposite effect. There are people who believe, who believe this, that now have said things like, now we have the truth. We didn't have it before, but now we've arrived as if there's nowhere else to go. So the biggest benefit that I've taken away from this study of eschatology isn't that I know more about the book of revelation, but that it's I'm more gracious and patience with those, and patient with those who don't agree with me. And, and we could all stand to exhibit more of that in our lives because it's, it's real easy to point fingers at people that are engaged in what we would consider to be, you know, a false paradigm or to go even further, a false doctrine. And, you know, to point at them whenever we ignore some of our own inconsistencies with how we're living out our lives and our Christian lives that really have nothing at all to do with preterism or, or our viewpoint on origins or anything else you know, we've, we tend to lose that sight of each other being God's people and God's children in an effort to be right. And we pursue being right over everything else. But even so though, I mean, this is, this can be a big deal. And I mean, it's a big enough deal that there has been division that has taken place in different churches and in different groups. There have been people that have changed perspectives one way or another that have been cast out of their fellowships. And, and that to me is tragic. It's, it's a really, really big subject. And one of the things that you said in, in some of our email correspondence, it's a big deal. It's not like changing a light bulb. It's not just like, oh, well, okay, yeah, I thought this way, but now I think this way. Could, could you elaborate a little more on that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when you think about changing a light bulb, you know, you think about a fairly easy task that you can do, you know, in a couple of minutes, or at least some of us, right? But there are... Uh, <laughs> There's topics in the Bible as well. You know, you can you can clarify something with one or two verses or five or ten minutes of conversation. But this is more like rewiring the entire house or maybe even moving the house altogether. Um, just for for instance, um, when I when I first heard the word preterist, it took me about six months to study uh, to the point where I agreed with it. I started off trying to prove it wrong, and I know people who've studied it for years, uh, and it took them years to come to this position. And there's way more people than that who've studied this for years and still don't agree with it. And so, you know, if you come away from this podcast and you say, that was interesting, but I'm not convinced, then that's what I expect. <laughs> you know, yeah, I don't expect yeah. anybody to listen to this or you or Kevin or anybody and go, oh, well, yeah, uh, you know, let me go. Uh, let me go join the Preterist Club now. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there is one, right, by the way. 
Yeah, there is. Uh, you know, just uh, just PayPal me five hundred dollars, and I will send you the link, and you can be a part of it. You get it. You get a Preterist sticker. Yeah, exactly. Yep. I, man, I'll I'll order some from Pendergrass Promos, and have it sent to you. Hey, if if I get a cool hat, I'm in, man. I'm in. So so, so Daniel, with with this whole idea of thought, I, I want to kind of get back because I mean, you know, we we've discussed this as far as the. The, the, the skeleton of this whole belief system. And I, I just think it's important to kind of step back and just give about five minutes. I know we, you just briefly touched on it at the very beginning, but give about five minutes. We'll give you five minutes uninterrupted uh, to just talk a little bit about everything and then you can unpack it. But so every, if it, just imagine, because I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people who are listening to this podcast have probably never heard of preterism. This right. is probably the first exposure they've ever had other than possibly hearing someone else talk about how it's a damning doctrine. And sure. so give about, we'll just let you have about five, five or so minutes to just, if you were talking to somebody who never heard of it, all they, this is something that has, has never crossed their mind. How would you explain it? So I would start off most likely by going to the teachings of Jesus. Uh, one of the most well-known passages, you know, that, that's, that's about this subject is in Matthew chapter 24. And um, see, here's, here's really what it gets down to. In Matthew 24, 29 to 31, Jesus says this, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one in the one end of the sky to the other. So when you read this passage, what goes through your mind is, okay, well, you know, the sun's going away, the moon's not giving its light, uh, the heavens are going to be shaken, Jesus is going to come in riding on the fastest cumulus cloud out of heaven, and everybody's going to see him, and his angels are going to be there, and there's going to be a great trumpet, and the faithful are going to be gathered to Christ. And when you read that passage. Uh, it's very clear what's happening there. You know, there's no doubt he's talking about the end of planet earth as we know it. And, you know, the rapture or the, the ascension of all the saints. But when you read down just a little bit, he says in verse 34, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so what preterism attempts to do, and I think, I think does is it tries to reconcile all of these time statements the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, these things, you know, the things written in this book are at hand. They must shortly come to pass, as he says in verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1. If those things truly were at hand and were shortly to come to pass and would take place before some of his disciples would die, then how do we understand them? Did it happen like Jesus said it would, or did it not? And if it did happen, obviously the earth is still here. The moon is still giving its light. The sun hasn't been turned into darkness, right? So, so how do we understand those passages? And so what preterism does is it looks at the entire Bible from Old Testament to New Testament to see how this language is used and uh, how maybe we have misread or read ourselves into some of these passages that we find in the New Testament. The most you know, the most obvious of all of these, I suppose, is, you know, look around. We're still here. The earth is still here. It's not on fire. You know, things haven't been burned up. The cloud hasn't been rolled back as a scroll. So what's the deal? If Jesus has already come, then why are we still living on planet earth? And I think a, 
and I think a few of these passages, as I, as I hope to have a chance, uh, you know, to, to have a chance later, uh, there's a few passages in the Old Testament I'd like to look at a little bit later that show how some of that language is used. And absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. Our, our basically, uh, you know, our, our basic premise is Jesus said he would return within that generation. His disciples obviously believed, like from James 5, 8 and 9, that the coming of the Lord was at hand. Even Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we that are alive and remain, talking about him, Paul, and those living, breathing Christians at the church of Thessalonica, uh, you know, those that are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord. So we want to take those statements seriously, but in order to do so, we need to look into what does Paul mean? Um it's very, it's very easy to, to read these passages and think, okay, well, the earth is going to burn. Uh, the elements will melt with fervent heat. That makes sense. I know the elements, you know, uh, hydrogen, helium, lithium, all that. So what's the deal, you know? Um, but what we have to understand is that when we read the Bible, we are reading a book that was written uh, by Jewish people to a bulk of Jewish people and Gentile people who studied the scriptures. You know, we talk about the Bereans. They studied their scriptures daily. But the Bereans weren't studying their Cambridge, you know, pocket leather-bound New Testament. <laughs> the Bereans were studying the Old Testament scriptures, and so we should use when, when we uh, when we study the New Testament, we should use the Old Testament as an interpretive tool to help us understand some of this fantastic language. And I think then we can reconcile the time statements that are used in the New Testament and take those seriously, and take the expectations of Paul and the first-century saints seriously that the Lord really was going to return within their generation before some of them would taste death. So your, well, your argument then in summary, because cause I want to just add a couple things to make sure that I'm correct on this, is that sure. Jesus predicted that while he didn't know when he would return specifically, it would be sometime within their lifetime. Yeah, yeah, sure. Here's an example of that. In Matthew 24, 20, which is in, uh, now you have to kind of be like, you know, in the know, you know, studying these things like, you know, uh, to sort of know why this is a big deal. But in the alleged, you know, first half of Matthew 24 and verse 20, he says, but pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So not only did he know, not know the day or the hour, he didn't even know what season it was going to be in, <laughs> you know, pray that these things don't happen in the winter time. So he knew the general idea in this generation, but he didn't know the specific day or hour or even season that these things Yeah, so, so, so when Jesus said that he didn't even know when his return would be, he didn't, he wasn't saying that I, I don't know a general time period. He's saying, I don't know the specifics of when this is going to happen. Exactly. You know, one of the, one of the major uh, metaphors that's used to talk about the coming of the Lord is birth pangs, you know, a woman in labor. And uh, my son, who was born on my birthday, actually January 6th, wasn't due until January 23rd. Now, whenever the doctor told us he was due on January 23rd, that was uh, that was the best guess that she could give. What she meant was somewhere around January 23rd and possibly before. And so when Jesus talks about, uh, you know, you're, he'll, he'll, he'll return within this generation, he doesn't tell them exactly when, but he gives them a general idea, kind of like a due date. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like if I'm going to meet with a friend and we don't have a specific timeline out. Well, you know, we don't know when we're going to get together. We, we have no idea when we're going to get together. That that doesn't mean that there, you know, I don't know that we're not going to be getting together within the year <laughs> or within yeah. the month. It just means that I don't know the specific time. And so that makes a lot of sense because I know that that would be a question 
that people would ask and that even I would ask is it seems clear that Jesus is admitting he doesn't know, but you're saying that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that Jesus didn't have a general idea uh, of when of when he was going to return because he goes on to say it will be within your lifetime. I just don't know when. And and just to go ahead, too, because I've studied this on the on the surface. And just like with Lee, I'm going to I'm going to be pretty neutral here because this is something I'm still studying. We're actually having uh, Wes McAdams on in our next episode to talk about the new heavens and new earth um, view. And so which is going to be the really the complete opposite view that you're going to be talking <laughs> about today. But one of the things that I have found interesting in studying is that from my understanding, Muslims Atheists, especially um, very good Bible students like uh, Bart Ehrman, for example, a great scholar, they all point to the fact that all early Christians in the Bible believed Jesus was going to return in their lifetime. And that one of the reasons why the Muslims believe that Jesus is, is a false prophet is because he didn't do what he said. Am I correct in saying that? That's right. In fact, uh, if you are, if you'd like to read, um, Bart Ehrman has a great book called Jesus, Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, in which he goes through, you know, uh, he goes through a lot of effort to show that the first century Christians expected Jesus to return in their lifetime using some of the same methods and, uh, you know, uh, tools of interpretation that we use. But the thing that he says is, you know, therefore, uh, you know, Jesus was wrong because he obviously didn't return. Whereas we would say, therefore, Jesus was right because he obviously did. So, you know, there's, there are some uh, there are some apologetic reasons for believing what I believe as well. Well, one of the things that I really appreciate about your position, even if I find myself, I'm, I'm like Kevin, I'm neutral on this. I really, I don't buy it, but I don't wholesale reject it either. But one of the things I really appreciate is the methodology that you utilize to arrive at this conclusion and the fact that you're contextualizing the scriptures and really trying to put them together in an honest way. I, I really respect that. And I think that's admirable that that you respect the generic discourse and the generic literature and the framework that exists because you're recognizing that apocalyptic literature for what it is. And there's so often, you know, we we tend to miss the mark in generic discourse and ignore the genres that we're that we're reading. And that can lead us down some some tricky paths that we have to navigate and maybe even some some full blown wrong headed conclusions. So even if I end up not landing right where you are, Daniel, I really appreciate the way that that you're arriving at your conclusions. I think that's really, really cool. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I, I. I do try to be honest with the scripture the best that I can. I mean, that really is my goal. Uh, you know, I want to give a, just a quick word about why it is that there might be so much misunderstanding about the end times, especially within the Church of Christ. In the Restoration Movement, you know, we did not have a set eschatology when this began. Alexander Campbell's paper, you know, the Millennial Harbinger, he believed that through his who through his ministry and the ministry of his contemporaries, he was bringing in the millennium because he was a post-millennialist. Uh, Barton W. Stone, if my memory serves me correctly, was a pre-millennialist. There was even a guy in that time named Cyrus Jeffries. I have a couple of his books on PDF, and he was a preterist, funny enough. Not a lot of people know about him. But the point is, is we didn't really have a set eschatology until, uh, until the time of uh, Foy E. Wallace and another preacher named Oliphant, who were very against premillennialism and held series of debates and things like that. But what I've 
come to find out in my in my own personal eschatology, and I know this isn't true for every member of the Church of Christ, that our eschatology is more anti-premillennialism. Well, what's the millennium? Well, it's not what the premillennialists think. Well, what's the what's the ascension? What's the rapture? Well, that's not what the premillennialists think. And so a lot of it seems to be more of a reaction, and we allow them to control the language in terms of the nature of these events and the future aspect of these events, where what I think is the better route is to re-examine whether those presuppositions are valid to begin with. Absolutely. And one of the things that I've grown less tolerant of is defining things by what they're not. And I, I really think there's, it's much more helpful to define things by what they are, because it, it's really easy to say like that Pharisee in the temple, I'm not like that guy over there. Thank God I'm not that guy. But it's, it's, I, I just don't like that idea of defining things as they're not. Well, you know, well, what is the millennium? Well, it's not what the premillennialists think. You know, we're defining by a negative at that point. And that, that just doesn't seem, that's not helpful to me anymore. So I really appreciate that. Kevin, what did you have you wanted to ask? I yeah, so have- I think I think this would be a good time because this was a little bit later on in our outline, but I feel like to keep keep with a good flow and consistency of things, going back to Matthew 24. So your primary argument, it sounds like, is that Jesus said that his his second and final return would be within the lifetime of those who were listening to him. And with that said, I know that a lot of people, myself included, were taught to read Matthew 24 as two different events. And so I was taught to read Matthew 24 on the one hand of saying, okay, this is the destruction of Jerusalem Jesus is talking about. He's not actually talking about his final return where when he says that there will be some still living. Uh, but he's talking about this destruction of Jerusalem versus his final return, where when it comes to his final return, we don't know when that's going to be. That's still sometime even today in the future. So how would you respond to that understanding of Matthew 24, that Jesus is talking about two separate events where you believe that all of that is one event that happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem? Sure. I'd like to do this in two ways, the, the short way and the fast way. So the fact, wait, hang on. That's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, short, the short way and the long way. So in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, for instance, notice just a, cu- a few key words here. He says, the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great gl- glory. Now go to Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse 31. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. He'll separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. What within this, these two chapters would indicate a switch in discussion? Both passages are talking about the son of man coming in glory. Both passages are talking about the son of man coming in glory with his angels. And both passages are talking about uh, the son of man coming in glory with his angels and gathering people to him. And so just right there, it seems like the 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 it seems like the the tendency to split up Matthew chapter 24 is more out of necessity of holding on to a future coming than it is out of you know uh, the text out of the text itself yeah right and so uh, i want to show this though and to me uh, is is such a more conclusive way uh, and it's just really w- when i saw this uh this connection i you know, I, I realized that me trying to battle preterism and trying to prove it wrong uh, was was quickly going to be a lost battle. And so 
let's look at Matthew 24. I want to point out a couple of things here. Um, there's a couple of passages in the first section of Matthew 24 that I'd like to focus on. Uh, just, just reading them, just uh, getting them in our mind. Uh, typically what you would do is, you know, pull out a whiteboard or a sheet of paper and write, write these things down on the left-hand column so that you can complement them with things we're going to write down in the right-hand column. But just notice uh, Matthew 24, 16. He says, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. He says, uh, woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing in those days. All right, go down a little bit uh, to verse 23. He says, if anyone says to you, behold, here is Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false apostles will arise and will show you great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. He goes on to say in verse 27, uh, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. Go down a little bit now to the to the second half of Matthew chapter 24. I know we didn't explain any of those things, but I really just want you to get the, the language in your mind. In Matthew 24, 37, he says, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. He goes on to say in verse 40, uh, there there will be two in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two of them will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Now, typically what we say is all the passages I read at the beginning up until verse 34 are about the fall of Jerusalem. And all the passages I read about the at the end about Noah and two being in the field, one taken and the other left and things like that are about the end of time sometime in our future. But look at Luke chapter 17. And I want you to notice Luke 17 uses these same phrases exactly from both the first first section and the second section, but he uses them in one clearly undivided discourse. In fact, the heading of my Bible says second coming foretold. He says in Luke chapter 17, and verse uh, 23, here's one. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. You might remember reading that passage in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 23, for instance. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 17, uh, looking down now to verse 24. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Well, there's Matthew 24, 27. He goes on to say in verse 26, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So there's a reference to the second half, alleged half of Matthew chapter 24. You go down just a little bit. He says in verse uh, verse 31, On that day the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Now, just to make a quick point, if this is talking about the end of time when the world's going to burn up and a trumpet's going to be blown and people are going to flop into the sky, what good is going back into your house to get your things or fleeing to the, you know, <laughs> fleeing to the mountains at all, right? Yeah, you don't need your cloak if that's what's going to happen. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. and I think this, and, and I'll... And I'm not a preterist, but it may sound like it every now and then because I'm going to give credence to where I think credence is due. I believe that looking at Matthew 24 and what you just said, that has given me the greatest pause to 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 think preterism could be true, because I think when you look at the with when you look at this passage, 
it is very difficult, as you said, even if you just read Matthew 24, how many people in the churches of Christ specifically, since that is where Lee and I and all of us come from, if you look at that, then none of us believe that there's going to be some taken and some left. And if you read Matthew 24, past 36, which is where I was taught that the quote-unquote division occurs, where Jesus then turns his attention to uh, his, his final return that's still futuristic, that's where it says two women will be grinding on the mill, one will be taken and one left. We don't believe that. If if the, the church, the I won't say church across theology, but the theology we were we were taught to believe is that when the Lord returns, you know everybody's everybody's going, and so this whole idea of one will be left and one will go, that's something that I have and still do wrestle with with the current view, kind of the hybrid view that I hold right now, because I think that that poses a lot of problems. So you bringing that in with Luke chapter seventeen uh, verses twenty through 37 is very interesting. So you're basically saying when you look at Luke's account, this is not two separate instances or occurrences. This is going to be the exact same thing. Yeah, it's it's clearly not. And not only that, um, you can't split it up because the language is intertwined. It's not like he uses half the references in the front and half the references in the back. It's like he goes, you know, first half, second half, first half, second half, as if to say that, you know, they're all talking about the same event. Yeah, it's all intermingled in there together. Now, a question that I have, because like I said, this is not a a huge field of study or something that I've really looked at in detail, but all of the study I've ever heard, like Kevin and like you probably did too, Daniel, in, in previous times, is you see that delineation there in Matthew. And it's always said that it's talking about, I've always heard it taught at least, that it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what I understand about preterism is that it agrees with that take insofar as yes, there is something to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy taking place there. But where we tend to stop is at that point. We don't go further and say that the actual second coming occurred at that point. And that delineation between Matthew and making it two separate discourses, if you will, or two different topical ideas is is in light of that view of this is dealing with the destruction of the temple. This is dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Roman general Titus coming in and just laying siege to Jerusalem and obliterating everything. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about Jesus in the second coming. That it's it's dealing with this. So how would you, how do you respond to to that line of thinking? Because it's well, it's always seemed kind of eh, I don't know. I've always had kind of a difficulty with that. Well, I'm going to be a little. I'm going to be a little snarky if, if I'm allowed. <laughs> Brother, at, we are so Matthew, snarky. Go right ahead. All right, look at Matthew 24 verse 30. Okay, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, regardless of whether or not you like it, the fall of Jerusalem is associated with the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. So let's count, okay? Jesus, you know, born in Bethlehem. Well, there's number one. Jesus coming at the fall of Jerusalem. There's number two. So what we've done is we've created a third coming of Jesus because, you know, as people in the Church of Christ will say, this is about the fall of Jerusalem. So this is the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky at the fall of Jerusalem. Did he come or did he not? And why are we leaving that out of the count? 
So you're, oh, but he's coming in the power of the Roman army, brother Daniel. Don't he's coming in in the in the clouds. That's the dust that the chariots would would kick up. I mean, it's that's that's what he's doing. He's, no, and listen, I mean, you're laughing. That is how I've heard that explained. That's how I've heard that taught from the pulpit. And oh, wow. and and you know, you sit there, and if you get someone that has a lot of charisma, like Kevin, and you know, they get up there and they teach that. And you sit there and you're thinking, yeah, yeah. And then you look at it later, you're like, well, wait a minute. Why would the scriptures that, you know, the son of man is an aphorism that would be used to refer to the Messiah. That's that's a Jewish idiom that refers to Messiah. Why would Jesus use that to refer to a pagan Roman general? That That's a question I can never answer. But that's how I've heard that that idea explained. Well, this is speaking, this is Jesus speaking in figurative terms and and he's speaking actually of General Titus. This is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. It actually has nothing whatsoever to do with his return. See, and that's that's the thing is that uh, all the all this language about the sun being turning to dark, the being turned to darkness, and the moon turning to blood, and all that is figurative terms. But it's not just figurative terms when it's used here. It's figurative terms when it's used in Revelation, and it's figurative terms when it's used in Acts chapter two, quoting quoting from Joel. And it's figurative terms when Peter talks about the elements melting with fervent heat. Uh, you know, we are one thing that we are so inconsistent on is deciding. You know, when is it going to be? When is it going to be apocalyptic prophetic language, and when is it not? And so, it's not an inconsistency on my part. I think it's an inconsistency on the typical Church of Christ position on when do we apply this figurative language and when do we not? You know. Interestingly enough, in uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, if you just do a side-by-side comparison between Matthew 24 and Revelation 1-7, there are no different elements. Revelation 1-7, behold, he's coming with the clouds. Check. Every eye will see him. Check. Even those who pierced him. Well, that, that tells you what generation it's talking about. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Check. So all the elements in Revelation 1-7, which most people believe is about the actual second coming are contained in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. The difference is in one passage, we decide to apply the rules of interpretation when interpreting prophetic language. And in the other passage, uh, you know, we don't, and we want to apply, well, you know, apply it in this way. Well, I didn't see him. Did you see him? I didn't see him, Kevin. Did you? Well, he must not have come, you know? And so it's inconsistency on the part of those who critique preterism from my perspective. Well, and, I, and, and I've got a question here because this is something I'm going to ask Wes next week and sure. that, that I find interesting. And I'm going to allow you to, which he, he's kind of at a disadvantage because you're the first one we're talking to about eschatology. So right. we're, we're kind of letting you go at it first, but I'm, I'm going to see if you have any questions that you think would be good to, to have him. And maybe in the future we can, you know, actually bring several people on maybe you and him together to, to kind of discuss this because west too is a is a fine christian he he, he uh, is very grace-centered and i know that he's not one who thinks everybody has to see things his way and so that's what's great and that's what our whole program and podcast is about is this in my opinion is how christianity should look right we should be able to come together bring different ideas to the table, brainstorm. And if we go away leaving with different ideas, that's okay because that's our own faith in Jesus Christ that we're working through. But here is something that I, I think what you brought up is a very strong point because if you look at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30, which is what you just read, okay, the uh, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds 
of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels in a, tr a loud trumpet call, they, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So what you have going on there, and as you pointed out, even if you take the position that the latter part of Matthew 24 is not talking about, uh, or, or if you if you take the position, no, regardless what position you take is what I'm trying to say, Matthew 24, everybody would agree, well, yeah, that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and we should understand that as figurative. That's what I was taught to believe, and I had no problem believing that. So I didn't think that when I read Matthew chapter 24, that Jesus literally came in the clouds, that there was a trumpet that sounded, that he gathered all of his people together in the clouds. I didn't believe that all of that was, was going to literally happen. But yet when I go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which literally reads almost verbatim <laughs> with exactly. Matthew 24, and I want to go ahead and read this to you here for the audience, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, I'll just go ahead and begin in verse uh, 16. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then Paul goes on to say, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, I, I want you to kind of expound on that because I know you've written a whole book, a commentary on First Thessalonians. So give your understanding of what Paul's talking about here and why you think that Paul is talking about the same event Jesus is talking about, which is the second coming of Jesus, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. And if you want to hear the answer to that question, you'll need to tune in next week to hear the rest of this interview with Daniel Rogers. As always, we appreciate your listening. We appreciate your patronage. Please continue to share our podcast with your friends. Like us on Facebook. Give us that five-star review on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform that you're using to listen. We'll see you all again very soon.